I think the frequency in which we started to see these campaigns roll out one by one began to feel a little bit of the any publicity is good publicity kind of concept. So I was kind of getting frightened that issues and matters of diversity are being used as PR stunts because we know obviously that that's obviously heinous and offensive, but moreover, it could be potentially dangerous. My name is CJ, and welcome to Black in Fashion, a podcast that highlights key Black figures who have impacted the world of fashion as we know it today, as well as those who continue to influence its ever-changing industry. Each episode, we'll profile different people from past to present, as well as conduct interviews and engage in dialogue around race and diversity within the fashion industry. All right, you all. So welcome to this week's episode of Black and Fashion. So for today, we're going to talk about a recent trend amongst fashion brands, mainly luxury houses, but a recent trend in them appointing new chiefs of diversity and inclusion. Beyond that, we'll go into depth about the different controversies that have happened over the past year and what these companies have done to try to turn things around and what they're doing to go forward. I'm going to be doing this with a special guest and colleague of mine, Ms. Brooke Cherie. Brooke Cherie is a serial entrepreneur and fashion tech enthusiast. While studying at the University of Georgia during undergrad, Brooke started the agency. This was the first and only campus modeling agency that magnified fashion on campus, promoted modeling for local businesses and brands, and valued community service overall. The agency was so successful that it now sits affix to the university as a permanent organization. Now, along with her online intimate apparel brand, Brooke Cherie Lingerie, Brooke is building a new venture, The Highlight. It's a new media tech startup catering to the beauty and fashion industries. You can follow her on Instagram at BP Cherie. That's B-P-S-H-A-R-E-E. How are you doing today, Brooke? Good. Thank you so much for having me on. No problem. Thank you so much for joining me. So you and I have had conversations about the fashion industry, race and diversity, and we can spend literally hours on the subject. Today, I'm just going to start us off by sort of going through the different scandals that have happened over the past year with some very popular brands. So we all know in January 2018, H&M sort of kicked us off with their ad with the young black child wearing a hoodie that said coolest monkey in the jungle. That was in January of 2018. And as a result of that, like a lot of stores in South Africa had to close. There was a lot of backlash just from that particular incident. So that was back in January of last year. So move on to the end of the year, November 2018, Dolce & Gabbana, they came out with an ad where they depicted a Chinese model attempting to eat pizza with chopsticks. We're going to talk more about Dolce and Gabbana at the very end, so we'll revisit that. Yeah, um, but in I think it was spaghetti, but either way, horrible. You're right. Um, I actually looked it up, so there are some articles that said spaghetti and some articles that said pizza. When I looked up the commercial, it actually was a slice of pizza. Interesting. I think I've seen still ads of the spaghetti, so maybe they did both. They probably did. I'm going to Google that some more. That was in November, so December, literally a month later, is when 
the picture's release of Prada's window display, which featured charms that pretty much depicted um, a blackface. It was this little figure that was like to some people, I think someone said it looks like a like a little samba, which if you don't know American history, Google that pretty much the idea of what blackface is. So, so far we've gone through January, November and December 2018. This year, in February actually, during, um, I know this one was in London Fashion Week, Burberry had a model on the runway who actually had a noose tied around her neck. And that set a lot of people off, obviously Mm -hmm. for the racial controversy, but also the depiction of suicide. Within the same month, we had Gucci, who we all know and love, released a sweater on their website that was, well, it was a black sweater that had sort of red and around the lips. And that was yet another depiction of what a lot of people considered blackface imagery. So it seemed like all of this was happening back to back, sort of the end of 2018, beginning of 2019. Mm-hmm. So, so what did you make of all of this? You know, I think my feelings when they rolled out one by one and even now are still kind of mixed, you know, On one hand, I think that obviously the perception of these brands has dampened a little bit as far as my perception of these brands are concerned. The biggest concern for me was, are these brands doing it on purpose? I think the frequency in which we started to see these campaigns roll out one by one began to feel a little bit of the any publicity is good publicity kind of concept. So I was kind of getting frightened that Issues and matters of diversity are being used as PR stunts because we know obviously that that's obviously heinous and offensive, but moreover, it could be potentially dangerous to the parties in which are being depicted. Uh, So that's kind of how I felt. I think, like I said, it was a very mixed feeling and I still kind of feel different things when I see these campaigns roll out. Uh, But the most important thing is where are the people in these buildings that are emphatically saying this cannot happen? I completely agree. I actually um, saw an article that said something very similar about whether this was all happening on purpose or not. It was ironically like the last two were right in the middle of Black History Month. It's sort of something to really think about. One thing that I thought about when all of this was happening was, like you said at the very end, who's sitting at the table, who's not sitting at the table. Diversity and inclusion is huge, but diversity can be one thing. Diversity is sort of you having a diverse maybe audience, maybe you have diverse models, you have people from different backgrounds. But when you think about inclusion, are these the same people actually making decisions? Are these the same people designing? Are these the same people creating these media ads? So it's definitely something to think about. When thinking about H&M, I know the actual mother had no idea what was going on. She didn't mm-hmm. take it as seriously when it actually did come out. She thought everyone was sort of overreacting. But I mean, either way, like that doesn't really change sort of the global impact when you think about it. Yeah. And I think, too, uh, when I read that article, which gave us a little bit more background into the H&M issue. And it, apparently it was reported that the young boy actually chose that shirt. He just liked the color better. But I think with the amount of sensitivity in the world right now, there definitely should have been some people on set who saw potentially the connotation that that shirt would incite. 
But I think there is such a vast array of differences across countries and across regions. So, you know, I typically, when I'm explaining diversity and inclusion, like to tell people to think of it similar to cooking. So diversity is like the ingredients that you're using, whereas inclusion is actually mixing them together and baking it on 350. So essentially the product is what happens when those ingredients either work together or don't work together. And so I think in the fashion industry right now, we're seeing these ingredients, potentially some ingredients being left out of the preparation. And that's why we're getting a literal, people can taste the difference when something's left out of that meal. And I think that's what we're seeing here is that there are voices that are potentially being silenced if they are actually in those rooms. What would be more concerning is if people are completely absent in those spaces. So to the point in H&M, there's several people on set. Even if the little boy thinks the blue shirt is more attractive or the green shirt is more attractive than the blue one, there's a little bit of a like authoritative kind of response from somebody on set who maybe can pick up that this may not be the best thing for us. And just to piggyback off that, I also saw one argument saying that a lot of these brands sort of facing this controversy, you're looking at historically European heritage brands. They have a very different history than the United States. So maybe that's not the first thing that comes to mind. Even H&M, which isn't like a heritage luxury brand, but still based in Europe. But to that, my first thought is no matter where you're established, if you're still considered a global brand, if you have an audience in this part of the world or that part of the world, exactly, there's a lot of things you still have to consider, which we're going to touch on even more when we talk about Dolce & Gabbana. So with Burberry, apparently the theme for that particular collection was supposed to be nautical or marine inspired, which go figure, he used a rope. One particular thing, and this sort of speaks to what you said earlier, Bernice King, daughter of Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King, when she saw the whole Burberry incident, she asked, how many people saw this before it made it to the runway? Mm -hmm. And, And the larger question, how can people guard their hearts and minds from normalizing and trivializing symbols and images that historically represent racism, bigotry, and oppression? Mm hmm Really powerful words, but again, that speaks to having a global customer, even if your primary customer is in Italy or is in France or the UK. These are still things to think about. Absolutely. I think that what people are forgetting, especially in the American market, the latest statistic that I came across was that African-Americans make up 14% of the U.S. population, but their buying power will rise to about $1.54 trillion in this year. So I think what's interesting is, you know, we're, we're wanting to appeal to African-Americans and to pop culture in general. And I think that being tone deaf to issues which directly affect our sensibilities is not only offensive, but it's getting to the point where it's like, is the drawback from such a scandal so lucrative that you're not willing to at least stay away from being offensive? I think it's easy for people, especially when we talk about privilege in this country, to shy away from addressing these issues head on. But I think that that's fundamentally one of the biggest issues is that there are things that this country has perpetuated over time that absolutely are examples of history. But to some extent, with us not addressing these things as being offensive, we're repeating them time and time again. And so it doesn't matter how many times you want to say, you know, I'm sorry. And I think that's where a lot of people got last year, especially a lot of influential people who were seeing these campaigns like Spike Lee and T.I. People are getting exhausted with hearing these apologies that aren't being backed with any real action. 
So speaking of apologies with or without action, let's talk about what these companies did or if they did anything. So mm-hmm. right after the controversy, H&M and Prada immediately appointed some figureheads as heads or chief officers of diversity. H&M actually appointed Annie Wu. She was appointed the global lead for diversity and inclusiveness in the H&M group. And the head of diversity in the American division is actually a Nigerian-American woman named Ezenik Kwabiri. Mm-hmm. And... I saw like a slight YouTube video of her who seems to really be invested in not just her role, but impacting diversity and inclusion. And the same thing goes with Prada. Prada actually, I don't think they actually appointed a person, but instead they sort of created a council. And on that council, they included like Ava DuVernay, uh, who sits on the council, mm-hmm. or the Esther Gates, who's a popular black sculptor. He's on the council as well. So these are things they did right away. It sort of begs to question whether or not these figureheads are just sort of put on as literal figureheads. You know, we we messed up. We did something that was racially insensitive. So let's make sure we put a good line of popular, committed black people in the forefront to make sure that we're pretty much taking care of this issue. That's how it can be perceived by some. Burberry actually took a very different approach. They didn't appoint anyone to sort of stand in place and say, hey, this is going to be the person who's responsible for making sure we don't do things like this anymore. Instead, they came up with three overarching initiatives. I'll actually read them out. So there's three main ones. The first one, educate and train employees on diversity and inclusion. I won't read them in full. The second one is diversify pipeline of talent through scholarship programs, in-school arts and culture programs. And the third one was all about supporting outside organizations that promote diversity and inclusion. So these are a few of the immediate actions that happened after the controversy. So what do we make of this sort of approach of, you know, appointing a figurehead versus not appointing a figurehead and just sort of saying what you're going to do differently? Right. I think it's important to assume, or at least from my perspective, I can't speak to the entire perception of the diaspora, if you will. But I will say that for me, I'm optimistic at this point that hiring people specifically who are in in the place of education, really standing in place to make sure that internships and apprentice programs, uh, which Prada implemented as well under their, their council, I think that those things are extremely important. And I personally appreciate them. I think companies, you know, carrying LVMH, Richmond, Capri Holdings, and even Farfetch with the amount of acquisitions that they're having really need to be prepared to get ahead of DNI by hiring not only an individual who's a figurehead or, you know, who's spearheading this issue, but I think these teams hiring an actual counsel is super beneficial because I think when you hire one person as the global head of diversity and inclusion, that could be a great thing. I think it's a start, but I do think that there are issues that affect a multitude of people, potentially not even just the black community, even with the black community, it's not a monolith. So there's so many different perceptions and and things that that affect potentially one subgroup of this market that don't affect another. So I think with these councils being implemented, I think it's a great thing. I would like to see what happens as a result of this, but I also don't think the conversation should stop once we've hired someone. I think that these should be regular check-ins. The way we can check the shareholder values and the things like that at the end of the year, I think we should be able to read 
what's happened this year with diversity and inclusion, how their public perception has changed, potentially doing a survey based on those things. I do think that there should be milestones and metrics that we can look at to determine if these positions are viable. And if we feel like the perception that we feel towards that brand has changed by them actually having a person in that position, if that makes any sense. I definitely agree. I think action is going to play a key role in all of these assignments and all of these appointments. Like you said, diversity inclusion, in my opinion, it should be something that's included just as much as every other metric in an annual report. So where are we in diversity? How diverse are we on the actual sales floor versus a corporate level? These are all things that impact the company sort of long term. But thinking about the sort of the articles that got us started from the very beginning. So just this past July, Gucci just appointed Renee Tirado, newly created role, global head of diversity, equity, and inclusion. So under this particular role, she's expected to help increase workforce diversity. And she's pretty much responsible for the strategy when it comes to recruitment and promoting talent. And so it's, you know, similar to the things we saw before. But what I like about this one is the Gucci controversy happened months ago. They're appointing it now. And so some may like it, some may not like it. To me, it feels like they actually put more thought into actually appointing someone versus this happens and now tomorrow, hey guys, look, we have a new head of diversity. Right. No, I think absolutely Gucci. First of all, I think it's fantastic. When I saw the picture of Renee Tirado, I'll instantly tell you just personally, I was extremely pleased because representation matters. So immediately I felt like, okay, this is a step in the right direction. Whereas I've had mixed feelings about other companies that hired a person at, for DNI that potentially, I don't know that this person can speak to my experience. And so that's a completely different dynamic and potentially even a completely different conversation. But Renee Tirado does have experience. She was formerly at Major League Baseball. So I know that this is not a new position for her. So I do think that that's an incredible transition. I will also say that I don't think that the lapse between the incident and when she was hired, it gives me any pause because I do think Alessandro spoke out right after the incident. I think he did a sit down with BLF to discuss from his perception, what happened and what his intention was and how that got misconstrued or whatever. I don't necessarily feel like these brands are in total inherently racist. Do I feel that there are extremely problematic products being made? Absolutely. Do I think that people are tone deaf to a lot of the issues happening? 100%. But I think speaking on Gucci in particular, I think I'll be excited to see kind of some of the initiatives that Renee is responsible for implementing. In my opinion, they can really only go up from here. I don't see that this be like, you know, the lapse time, like I mentioned, is a problem. I think it's it's great. Right. And Gucci's been doing phenomenal right now either way. So it does feel like this was more of a genuine step forward for me as well. It's funny that you did mention sort of when you first saw Renee, your reaction to someone who could probably understand or have a shared experience. Now, Chanel recently hired a new chief diversity officer, Fiona Pargete. And Fiona, she's actually a white woman. It wasn't done right after, but it was done in July around the same time as Gucci, which was sort of funny because Chanel actually hasn't been under fire for any any sort of racial scandal as of late. Although we all know, like the late Karl Lagerfeld, he was very well known for being problematic and having he was pretty dismissive when it came to social issues or offending people mm-hmm. um, for the most part. 
but it's interesting to think about Fiona's identity in relation to this sort of role because it's sort of twofold, you know, like Chanel didn't automatically choose a person of color as the diversity and inclusion lead. So it's like on one end, you could say that they're avoiding trying to pander or, or avoiding tokenism by simply just hiring someone who looks the part versus someone that may actually have the qualities. But then it also sort of makes you wonder how seriously do they take this initiative? Like if they're not actually putting a person of color in this role, like granted, no one should just get the role because of their identity. That's never mm-hmm. the case. But what do you think about that appointment with Chanel? I'm really glad you asked that question. You know, when I first saw it, I think my instant reaction was, oh my God, this is like, I can't believe they did this. You know, (laughs) like just kind of, to be honest. But I actually took a step back from that. And I was like, you know what? Am I part of the problem here? There's a person being hired to assist with potential issues that could come. I have no knowledge of Fiona Pargetaire besides, you know, what we've heard of just around her being hired for Chanel. So I think it's great. I think a woman being in this position is fantastic. That's diversity as it is. But then there was an inherent part after speaking to a few other colleagues where I felt like I was given, again, permission to at least at least to have my my feelings to deeply feel them. They're the first reaction to this. And that's because I feel like with diversity and inclusion in particular, we've reached a certain point in corporations, especially where, you know, when we talk about the amount of women who are in boardroom positions, we talk about the amount of people of color who are in these same board positions. Um, and we're talking about percentages lower than 5%. So, you know, these numbers are extremely problematic in that it doesn't reflect the world in which we live. Do I think that, you know, I have no idea as far as qualifications. I would love to see what Fiona can bring to the table at Chanel, should there be any issue. But I do think that's why I encourage the act of having a board of people and not just one person to represent the total of diversity for a company. Because I think that even if Fiona is is highly educated and qualified to work in this board, I think there are other people outside of her individual experience, her life experience is concerned, that could assist in being the liaison on certain issues. Now, I'm not um, as familiar with her background. The only thing I do know is that she actually held the exact same position at a Swiss bank called UBS. Mm-hmm. So this role isn't necessarily new for her. Although I do agree, I'm not sure what her experiences are. I'm not sure if her background, I'm not sure if like how much insight she'll have towards this sort of position, especially because this is fashion. But again, I am excited to sort of see what comes of it, what happens. One of the last times Chanel was really in the news for a lot of or for something that was sort of socially controversial was back in 2015 where they sort of had um, like a faux protest. It was for their spring, summer, ready to wear 2015. Mm-hmm. And the problem with that, it pretty much demeaned the idea of protesting. You know, most of the mm-hmm. time people don't just protest to be seen. It holds some sort of personal significance, sparks a conversation. But again, to me, that sort of reflects back to the idea of Karl Lagerfeld, who was pretty dismissive of social issues. He didn't, he didn't take them that seriously. But Chanel stated, we will continue to focus on new programs that demonstrate our appreciation for all aspects of diversity, including diversity of thought and to further promote a more inclusive and diverse culture. To me, they virtually said nothing about it because that's a very generic statement. When you think about race, diversity and inclusion, that mm-hmm. statement could sort of be copied and pasted, in my opinion, like to anybody's website. Absolutely. You know, that kind of leads and not to guide your conversation at all into the the issue with China. Um, I think that the fact that people are not in the position to speak on issues that they're knowledgeable about 
or what's gotten fashion in the position that it's in. And that goes far beyond hiring a person to get ahead of an issue. I think you have to understand, as you mentioned, that these are global brands and global reflects every single person that buy, respect, look up to the brand that you represent. So it's important to put people in positions who can kind of channel and be a vessel, a liaison for those issues. Now, that's actually the perfect segue. So let's go ahead and talk about Dolce & Gabbana. Now, I saved them for last because there's a bit more to their story, in my opinion, but they're also a prime example of what not to do. Absolutely. So this isn't about their apparel design or anything like that. This is something they did, you know, it's more related to media. So this was, again, in November 2018. It came out with an ad. It might have been two ads, but the ad pretty much predict a Chinese customer in the video or Chinese model um, struggling to eat pizza and or spaghetti with chopsticks. That made a lot of people very uncomfortable. Like, first, I'm pretty sure she knows how to eat pizza, but that the intent behind that ad. It did not hit the mark, whatever the market was supposed to hit, it didn't make it. And it actually made a lot of um, Chinese consumers uncomfortable. Through a few interviews I saw from people who previously had consumed um, Dolce & Gabbana, that ad, it it just made them very uneasy. Mm -hmm. Um, To make matters worse, um, an Instagram conversation was leaked with Stefano Gabbana, and he was pretty much, he appeared to be insulting Chinese customers. Now, he's known for being outspoken, but he said some very offensive things that I won't actually repeat them on the show but he later claimed his account was hacked but you know who believes that in response to stefano's comments the company actually issued an apology to me it wasn't really an apology one of the things they kept highlighting in that apology they were apologizing to the people who had planned the fashion show that was supposed to follow for all of their hard work um, because that show was actually canceled as a result of the ad and stefano's comments so As a result of all of this, the brand actually had to cancel, like I said, the Shanghai Runway Show. They were also pulled from a lot of really important websites, including Farfetch, which is very huge. They've been frozen out of China. And if you don't know anything about China and the luxury market, they make up about a third of luxury goods or luxury good consumption. And so the Chinese market is huge right now. And it's only been growing. I believe actually a Chinese ambassador to the brand resigned. A model said they would never work with Dolce & Gabbana again. And there was something else that stated, um, another really prominent model stated that the company doesn't love China, but they love their money. So mm-hmm. this this backlash, it even bled over to the States. In January, I think Kim Kardashian, she actually deleted a story where she promoted Dolce & Gabbana. And Vogue editor Susie Menkes, she was even chastised because she published a positive review on the brand's December show in Milan. Now, if anyone knows Susie Menkes, she's a very known, well-established journalist for Vogue UK. She's known as a fashion critic, but for that sort of backlash to go all the way to the UK, to Susie Menkes, who even issued an apology for her, for her publishing of that review, that shows the impact that this sort of controversy and this sort of scandal for the Chinese market had on Dolce & Gabbana as a company. Totally. I think kind of as this was happening, I was like, oh, my God, cheers, you know, because (laughs) it was the first time I had seen this unified front where absolutely you're feeling the repercussions of being disrespectful to a particular market. I think that that was one of the issues that T.I. was saying about the Gucci concern, like 
We spend so much money on luxury goods, African-Americans in this country, we should boycott the brand. And I think that, you know, people will pay attention to, to where you're spending your money and where you're not spending your money. And I think that that reflection is absolutely hitting these brands hard as it should. This is kind of why I was saying that it's important not to just have one person. It's impossible for one individual to have extremely deep-rooted depths of knowledge across multiple sectors. Right. I'm not suggesting that people can't be well-versed in different topics, but I am suggesting that to have a person that reflects you at the heads of these companies is reassuring, but it also is a situation where I feel like it can't just be, you know, we've hired this person, even if we do have an ambassador for the Black community or an ambassador from China working at our company, they can't be the only voice that says this isn't okay. There's a collective, there's an education that has to take place. There's diversity and inclusion training that needs to happen almost probably monthly, I would suggest, at these major corporations, because it shouldn't just be the top or C-suite people who are well-versed in these conversations. It should absolutely be the people who are everyday boots on the ground, putting work in, who are seeing the designs from where it comes in from fiber all the way until it gets quality control check. Right. you know, it's such a deep-rooted, large concern. And as you mentioned, we could talk about this for hours, but I do think that the Dolce & Gabbana example is perfect. Maybe you're familiar, I don't know. Are they still walked out of China or have they been reinstated, do you know? So Dolce & Gabbana is actually still locked out of China. Okay. It's not looking really great for them so far. There's actually a popular fashion history blogger in China. I believe her name is pronounced Lu Mixing. And she stated that the brands are running into a problem with the Chinese market, particularly Dolce & Gabbana, because they don't pay attention to the opinion of the Chinese people who buy so many of their products. Mm -hmm. And so right now, if you don't know, in China, it's a huge time of political sensitivity. I mean, granted, that's global right right now, but there's a lot of controversy surrounding mainland China, Beijing, Mm -hmm. Hong Kong, Taiwan. Even recently, a lot of the brands we just talked about that had issues earlier this year just faced controversy with China because of the way they represented Taiwan or Beijing during a really politically sensitive time. And the trade war with the U.S. doesn't help either. So like we said before, these brands really have to pay attention if they want to appeal to a global market. And they have to understand the world around them. They have to understand what's going on, especially in a growing market like China. They used to be one of the most trending topics on one of these. There's a Chinese social media platform. The name escapes me, but it's similar to Twitter. I Um, think it's Weibo, yeah. Weibo, yeah. So apparently their engagement dropped by 98% in literally that same month. The backlash towards that controversy, it's still going on today. But again, I mean, they haven't even posted it on that website, I want to say, since November. Wow, that's incredible. You know, to the point you just made, It's not only about hiring people, it's about listening. It's about literally getting in front of concerns that could potentially be problematic by allowing people the conversation. I think social media is such a great way to hear exactly what your customer wants, what they find offensive, what they find absolutely gorgeous. I think that there is a way to do it correctly. And we've seen, like, I think, like you mentioned, there's so many brands that are rolling out every day Coach had the issue with China. Givenchy had an issue. Versace recently um, had a statement. So it's like the list continues to grow. 
VOF published an article that said, who's next? So Mm -hmm. that insinuates that brands are probably walking on ice every day trying to figure out how do we not do something that's going to offend somebody. And I think that sort of paranoia is necessary to stir up action. There are people who can be hired because these aren't rocket science issues. This is an issue that I think requires people to listen to one another, which is something um, that's not trending in the world right. right now. So we'll see, I think, if these brands can kind of figure out a way to not make it such a, you know, I'm not really sure why why there's so much conversation around, like, what do we do? I think the answer is... Literally do your research. <laughs> yeah, do your research. Hire people who know more than you do. It's okay to say, I, I'm not familiar with this. Who knows something about this? There's got to be this cross-pollination of industries where a person in the fashion industry who knows nothing about the economic state in greater China can contact a person who knows everything about the economic state of greater China to have conversations. There's got to be that sort of cross-pollination in order for these brands to grow, I think. It does. And like the industry moves so quickly, but literally, like we said, do your research, watch the news, hire people to do this research for you. I guess like from the outside looking in, it looks very obvious, but I even cited this in, I want to say episode one, when I talked about Andre Leon Talley, um, when he was working sort of at his peak at Vogue, even Anna Wintour herself, before they released any huge major spread would literally just go to him to say, hey, Andre, is this offensive? And mm. granted, Andre Leon Talley cannot speak for all black people, but something as simple as, is this okay? Would this cause any sort of controversy? Something like that could have easily, to the right people or persons or board, could have easily avoided a good majority of these issues we just talked about. Absolutely. Like you said before, it's different because we're in an age of social activism and what someone call call out culture. So brands have to be hyper aware of the products and the media they're putting out there. The fashion industry has historically had an issue with race and diversity. With so many heritage luxury brands standing at the forefront, you leave so much room for controversy when you lack the diversity on your teams. And it's, Absolutely. Not, it's nothing new. Like right before our conversation, I just sent you um, Victor and Rolf's fall 2001 ready to wear show they literally had their models painted in black and if like if you looked at it you would be amazed but it's not mm-hmm. it's not new yeah it's, i think the theme was supposed to be a black hole but of course that's <laughs> definitely not translated there are many different ways you could have done that that did not in need blackface but again we can talk about this for days it's nothing new it's gone on since who knows when there are definitely ways to change it there are definitely ways to move in the right direction We have the resources and we have the knowledge and social media is not going anywhere. I think it's really important that brands stay aware, stay on top of it and know know their customer, but also know that if you're going to be a global brand, if you're going to work in this global economy, you need to have an understanding of the world. It's It's even the same way. McDonald's doesn't sell hamburgers and fries everywhere because everyone doesn't want hamburgers and fries. Mm -hmm. It works the same in fashion. I would say that, you know, I totally agree with you. I think that there's opportunity here. I think that this is twofold. I think it's both bad and good, but being optimistic about the future of this industry. One of the things I think people need to take into account is that people are very different. People require different things that shouldn't feel like more work to a brand. It should feel like 
just a global learning experience. And I think that if brands can get behind the idea of listening to people who potentially have different set of backgrounds, different experiences, cultures, and, and all sorts of things, I think that the fashion industry can go back to being one of the darling industries of the world. But I think that As you mentioned, fashion will continue to reflect the world. So we're feeling and we're seeing a lot of this kind of magnified in the fashion industry because it's going on kind of underneath the surface globally. So I do think that once we start to see fashion figuring it out, we can almost assume that it's a reflection that the world is actually changing for the better. Black in Fashion is written and produced by me edited by Joelle North. The theme music is from PBTM Production Music Library, and background music for our profile episodes comes from Lakey Inspired. The title is Better Days. Please like, subscribe, review, and rate Black and Fashion 5 stars on Apple or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also find us on Spotify, Google Play, or SoundCloud. Lastly, follow the show on Instagram and Twitter at BLKNFSHN. Again, That's at B-L-K-N-F-S-H-N, just like the logo. Thanks for listening.